You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Because that's what the social engineers are doing. They're thinking outside of the box. So we need to think like that too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Nadine Michaelides from Anima People, We speak about preventing insider threats using behavioral science. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. We're not talking conspiracy theory when we say it's all connected. When it comes to InfoSec tools, effective integrations can make or break your security stack. Though not as common, the same should be true for security awareness training. Not only does Know Before deliver the world's largest library of security awareness training, but they also provide a way to integrate the various elements of your existing security stack to help you strengthen your organization's security culture. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before about how you can integrate security awareness with your tech stack like never before. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories here, we've got some follow-up. What do we got here? Well, Dave, uh, you remember last week I talked about the story about buying my wife an iron, right? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, So she could be a – so she can quilt things. Right. Uh, She actually has a Facebook page for her quilting stuff. Okay. Um, And uh, somebody reached out to her by the name of Kaufman Frank, Hmm. right, which is interesting that they're – they have a first name for a last name and a last name for a first (laughs) name. I was thinking the same thing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and it starts off great. It's uh, because this page has a picture of my wife's smiling face on it, and she's, I think she's a very attractive woman, of mm-hmm, course. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, Hello, pretty lady. How are you doing? I hope you have a great. Mm. Now, I am an administrator on this page, so I get this message on my Facebook Messenger, too. <laughs> and I immediately go, A great what? <laughs> and he doesn't respond. I say, A great what, Coffin Frank? Don't leave me hanging, Coffin Frank. <laughs> And he says, a great day, my dear. Oh, thank you, Kaufman Frank. You have a great day, too. And he says, okay, you have a beautiful name. Where are you from? And I say, the U.S. Where are you? Where are you? And he goes, oh, nice place to live. I'm from Hawaii. It's my pleasure to meet you. Mm. How is everything over there and the weather condition? Mm-hmm. So what do you do for a living? And you know what I said? I said, I have a podcast where I talk about people who try to trick or scam people online. You should check it out. Very nice. <laughs> and he responds, really? I said, yes, really. What do you do for a living? Uh, I say, uh, well, the podcast for one thing. Don't you want to know what the podcast is called? And now this is where it gets interesting, Dave. And this yeah. is why this is not a catch of the day, but a, uh, a, a, a follow-up thing. Yeah. He goes, is called Alaye, A-L-A-Y-E. I don't know what that means. So I say a couple more things to him, but my daughter was in on this as well. She's also an administrator. She Googles Alaye. Do you know what that means, Dave? I do not. It is a West African term, and it means like, uh, it's like big man. What's up, big man? Ah. But it's a term that scammers use when they think they've encountered another scammer online. 
it's a code word. I see. So this guy saying a lie, he got the vibe that I was a scammer. So and, he's kind of like a fist bump to you. Right, hey. exactly. So uh, <laughs> oh boy. eventually I said a lie indeed and moved on. <laughs> You're in the club, Joe. That's right. You don't need this podcast anymore. That's right. Now I'm in the scammer club. <laughs> just retire and uh, just make your way around the world uh, enjoying that sweet, sweet scam money, right? Next so, time one of these guys texts me <laughs> or my wife's page, I'm going to go, what up, a lie Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and see what good. happens. That's good to know. Yeah. And maybe that's what we can do for everybody. Yeah. What else we got? Uh, we have a letter from Richard who writes in, uh, writes a long missive. Dave, you want to read this one? Uh, sure. It says, uh, hi, Dave and Joe. Whenever the business email compromise thing comes up, I think about this question. Why have we not adopted cryptographic email signatures? Mm. On the few occasions when I've had this set up properly with some other people, I get a great big red banner in my email client warning me if I get an email without a valid signature. Even FIDO2 WebAuthN doesn't give me this. It might protect the account, but doesn't affirm the identity of the sender in the same way. That's correct. I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Um, There's a couple of reasons I can think of, but they seem insufficient to explain the lack of movement on this. One, the technical types and their leadership think that everyone will have to deeply understand asymmetric encryption to be able to use a system based on something like PGP signing, and it's too complicated, so it will never catch on and we'd never be able to make the tools based on it that people could understand how to use. Second, it seems like it's a collective action problem. Uh, It needs some piece of software infrastructure to be built, maintained, and operated. Infrastructure that's of critical importance and has some serious engineering involved to do it right. No one seems to want to pay for this or step up and take on the liability. Uh, And he says government would seem to be the obvious candidate to do this, but they seem to lack the technical know-how in the right places. Yeah. Uh, Let's pick it up here. There's there's a lot more to this email that we don't have time to dig into, but I think we've got enough to Yeah, this is is an excellent question. I've worked in organizations where management all had to have uh, certificates on their email. Yes. Uh, And if they sent email out that did not contain the certificate— you very quickly saw them send the email again with the certificate. Oh, they got a smack on the wrist or something? Somebody would say, somebody would send an email to them and say, is this you? Because this isn't signed. Ah. And they'd just go in and copy and paste the email and send it again with the signature. Right. Uh, it, it, this was, uh, this particular organization I was at was uh, using Outlook. Uh, and it's, you can do it in Outlook pretty pretty simply. Yes. You don't need to have the users manage their uh, do their key management. You can have IT do that for them. Yeah. Uh, there are tools out there that do this. This already exists. It, this is an excellent question that uh, that Richard is writing. Why has this not been adopted more? It would be a great way to secure the you know uh, to secure the um, the, the emails being sent. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know that it, it helps you much in email account takeover. Uh, if that is fairly automated in a, in a system that is like a web-based email, mm-hmm. maybe if you have to have another password that, uh, that they enter to sign email, to sign emails yeah. uh, with the, with the private keys. But I don't think, I don't think you have to do that with, uh, with the way Outlook does it. I think the keys just sign it. But you yeah. have to have the keys present on your computer to, si- to sign the emails. I'm familiar with what you're talking about with Outlook. I have experienced that myself. Um, but I've also experienced the, the flip side, which I think is what Richard's describing here, is which 
And I'm going back a ways. Uh, you know, someone would try to do this, use PGP on their right on their email, and, and you'd get an email from them, and it'd just be like, oh, you can't you can't <laughs> open the email. <laughs> right, right, right. So it never reached the point where it was built in. Even the option of having it would be built in. And I think if if we were going to have this, that would be the the first way to have it is that it could be optional and an extra little bit of assurance so that if you got an email from someone and it were properly signed and all that kind of stuff, right. there'd be a little flag that would say, hey, you know, we can verify this email came through. It was encrypted. It, it is who they say they are. And just so you know, that's what we think about this. And yeah. that would be great. It would be, yeah, if these things were signed with certificates from some trusted root authority. Right. Uh, right. Which I think that's how it works, but the infrastructure may not be there. And if you're right, if you send me an email and I don't have that set up, uh, not configured on my on my system, what happens? Yeah, I mean, there needs to be some kind of a fallback. Right. And maybe the fallback says, hey, we couldn't verify this or this came through this way or, you know, right. whatever. Um, I'm, it's my, I do believe that, uh, I think Gmail is now encrypting everything internally. So if, if you're emailing between Gmail users, right. I believe it, there's encryption happening there now. And that, I think that's in the past year or so that that's become the default. Oh, I, I remember reading something about that, but I don't know the technical details of it. Yeah. But I think Richard's point is excellent that, uh, why? Why haven't? Why hasn't this happened? You right. know, it, it's it, a good and, question. And uh, I suspect it's, it's because email. Yeah, email's been around for so long, and right. kind of the federated nature nature of of email. Um, it'd be a hard thing to get everybody to sign on to. Um, but you're. But he's absolutely right. And it, it's surprising to me, and I share his frustration that there hasn't been some kind of a simple solution that's gotten any sort of serious traction. I agree. It's um, there should be it, yeah, it, this should be integrated into a lot of our clients that we use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder too if is it just that there are other alternatives now that it could be that the vast majority of people are going about their day using email just fine without it, right? You know, and so it may be. To, is it overwhelmingly a solution in search of a problem? Right. Could be. Uh, you know, and we the do, people who need encryption know how to get it. At Harbor Labs, we use an end-to-end encrypted uh, chat for most of our most of our communication now. Right. We don't really use email very much. I mean, the only time we use email is to communicate with outside customers. Uh, internally, we don't send emails around to talk about projects. Right. We, we get on. Yeah. We get on the uh, on the chat system and we talk there. Right. Yeah. And, you, and certainly things like Slack and Microsoft Teams and all the different uh, things that do that. Uh, you know, they have varying degrees of security themselves. Yeah. But you're right. They've they've largely replaced emails for that kind of communication. That is 100% I, correct. I think for the better. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Richard, for sending that in. Uh, we do appreciate it. And um, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss here on the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I'm going to kick things off here with our stories this week. Uh, And mine comes uh, from the folks over at Bleeping Computer. uh, And it's a a story uh, titled, uh, Hackers Push Malware Via Google Search Ads for VLC, 7-Zip, and CCleaner. It's written by Ionet Lasku, or I believe it's Ilasku. Hard to tell when there's a capital I and a lowercase L next to each other. Uh, My wife's name is Alana, so she deals with that every day. Uh, (laughs) But um, 
this is interesting, and, and it's been getting some attention here. Uh, it would seem that there are scammers who are taking advantage of Google's ad system uh, to buy ads uh, for popular bits of software and, and sort of um, utilitarian bits of software, things right. that the people would use. Uh, this article talks about uh, things like Notepad, uh, you know, VLC Media Player, those sorts of things. Uh, things that people would commonly search for. Right. Uh, what the scammers do is they buy ads that uh, purport to be the download pages for those apps. Mm -hmm. Then they spin up their own versions of those apps' pages. So as you've pointed out here many times, it's really easy to clone someone's website. Correct. Just the, the way that the web works, you, can, you have access to that code. So they may clone a legitimate website, spin it up on their own uh, URL, and they'll often use a lookalike URL. Uh, and so someone who's out there searching for one of these bits of software, the first thing will, that will come up in their Google search, because it's a paid ad, will be taking them to one of these scam sites. That's right. That's, and, that's how Google's business model works on this, Dave. Yeah. Do you remember when Google first started selling ads based on the searches that people entered? I do. Do you remember where the ads were? They were off to the side. They were off to the right. Yeah. That's correct. That's right. They didn't look like search results. Right. But Google said, we can add more value for the customer. And remember, that's not you. <laughs> that's, that's the guy paying them. Yeah. Or uh, the company paying them. So we can add more value to the customer if we make these things look like search, uh, search results. Oh, and we'll tell the user, that's you, mm -hmm. the, 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 uh, the product. We'll tell the product <laughs> that, uh, that this is an ad by putting a very small ad next to it. AD, right, 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 right. By putting a creamy white text on a white background. Right, exactly. You should have known that was an ad. <laughs> right. we, we told you. Right, right, right. Um, so what happens is then the, the person goes through and they think that they're getting this software. And quite often, one of two things happens. Either it's a credential uh, uh, harvesting attempt, so they'll right. try to get you to log into something. But what seems to be happening here is they will have a modified version of the software. Oh, even better. Right. So this so, is like this is like uh, almost like the game the – game, uh, the crack games so, uh, software. You yes. Know, I want to go out and I don't want to pay for Call of Duty Modern Warfare 6 or whatever it is now. I don't play mm -hmm. Call of Duty, so I don't know. <laughs> but um, uh, I want to go out and get that, but I don't want to pay the 80 bucks for the game with all the content. I'll just go get a crack version. Well, guess what? That's probably going to have malware on it. Right. Uh, but now there's free software out there. Yes. And these things like Notepad++, which is a great application, by the way. Mm -hmm. I, I use it. I install it on all of my Windows machines right away. Mm -hmm. Um uh, VLC, which is a media player, 7-Zip, another great application. Yeah. Uh, it does so much. 7-Zip will unzip just about anything. It's wonderful. Um, so it really uh, – these are these two applications in particular are, are applications I'm a big fan of, and these guys are going after the users of those applications. Yeah. So um, what will happen is you will download what you think is a legit version of yep. it, and it may indeed function – Perfectly fine. It is probably <laughs> altered versions of the original software. Right. But lurking within that software is the malware. Right. Which will do all the things that malware does. And, and uh, typically they're just they, – they, once they are in, you know, they're scraping for all the information they can get off of your machine. Yep. So I was a bit curious about this. Um, 
And so I did a little searching on my own. One of the pieces of software they talk about here is a, a, a open source uh, 3D modeling and rendering package called Blender. Are you familiar with yes, Blender? Yes, I have installed Blender. Yeah. I got a 3D printer for Christmas, Dave, so I'm trying, to, uh, <laughs> trying to do some 3D modeling now. Okay. So they talk about Blender here, and, and they, uh, they, they show some of the search results that they got for Blender. So I did a search for Blender 3D myself. And I did it in two different browsers. So uh, first I did it in the Brave browser, which mm-hmm. uh, I will say is my current browser of choice. Racking up those basic attention tokens, Dave? You know, I kind of ignore that part of it. Okay. <laughs> I know I know they're there. And uh, actually, Jason and Brian over on Grumpy Old Geeks give me a hard time about it because of that part of it. But I don't use that part of it, but I enjoy... Uh, the stuff that's built into Brave to block ads and all the security things that are built into it. Right. Uh, And it's a Chromium-based browser, so it works well with all the stuff you need it to work on. Uh, So I did a search for it in uh, Brave, and the first thing that came up was the actual Blender.org website, Hmm. the one from the company. On Brave. On, On Brave and doing a Google search. Okay. So I go to google.com, I type in Blender 3D, and the first thing that comes up is blender.org. Now, this is because Brave is blocking the ads. Right. They're not letting the Google ads come through. Correct. Yay, Brave. Yes. So then I went over to Safari, uh, Apple's, uh, you know, branded, uh, their their own browser, Mm -hmm. uh, and I did a search for Blender 3D. And sure enough, the first three results are all ads. Hmm. and uh, they say Blender 3D Download, and it's from blender3d-software.com. Another one says Blender 2023 Download. It's from blender3ds-download.org. There's one that says Blender 3D Models. It's from uh, blender.online, and the N has a little uh, accent mark above it, so not not a real N, Joe. Not a real N. No, that's a different Unicode character. Yeah, and so the fourth one is the actual... Blender.org organization. Yes. Now, here's another little tidbit here, is that in this article that we're referencing, uh, they say they reached out to Google, and Google took down the ads for (laughs) all these malicious sites. Probably issued a stern statement that we don't support this kind of behavior. Right. But as we record this, one of the ad results that I got is the exact same malicious ad that they're showing in the article here. <laughs> so right. I'm guessing Google did a little round of whack-a-mole. Yep. And it's back. Sure. Uh, to me, it seems like job one for Google <laughs> should be <laughs> the first result in my search on Google should not be something that has the potential to harm me. Right. I would agree with that 100%. That should be job one for Google. Yeah. Even if it is an ad, it shouldn't be something that's going to install malware on your computer. Right. Because now, how do I trust Google? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I've seen some some, uh, security folks this week uh, on some of the social media platforms saying that um, ad blockers are cybersecurity. Right. Right. I I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, I get the social contract of you're getting this stuff for free. So in exchange, you should be able to see ads. But in my mind, in this case, Google is not upholding their end of the deal. Yeah. Right. If if they can't prevent, if they can't take the effort to make sure that the ads aren't safe, 
then I'm going to block those ads. Absolutely. I think that's a fair, a fair trade-off. It's, it's, I may go so far as to not use Google also. Yeah. I would like it if the ads were just clearly more clearly marked as ads and were not designed to look like, uh, like, like search results. And I'm looking at this, Dave, and it, it does have a clear mark that it says ad AD and then a space and then a bullet point and then the link. Right. But the rest of the search result, you, you probably don't look at the URL when you, when you load up these search results and there's a picture in this article that has those three ads and mm-hmm. then you're talking about blend. I'm looking at the blender article, right? Or the blender search results right now. Yep. And they are almost indistinguishable from the, uh, from the actual legitimate search results. And that is by design and that's Google uh, doing what's best for, the, for their customers and not for their product. And that's, yes. I want to reiterate that. You are not the customer of Google. You are the product for Google. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, something to, to keep an eye out for, again, I, I would say uh, my take on this is absolutely, you, there is a great case for running ad blocking software. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you want to... You want to? Sh- I, I have no problem with an ad-driven uh, market, but this ain't it, right? <laughs> right. This, you know, I see an ad on a on a billboard while I'm driving by, or on my TV, or listen to one on my radio, or see one in a magazine. I don't. I'm not concerned about it getting on my computer and stealing all my stuff. Uh, and you'd think a company as big as Google is that old thing we keep saying they're going to say, but we can't do that at scale. Well, then you shouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah, because so you kinda, already are doing that at scale. Yeah, and what you're doing now at scale is pushing out malicious software at scale. Right, you're doing that just fine. Yep, yep. All right, so we will have a link to that story in the show notes. There, uh, interesting read, definitely worth checking out. There again from the folks over at Bleeping Computer. Uh, Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, I have two stories today because they're both kind of short. First one comes from WIBX, which is up in Marcy, New York. I guess that would be considered upstate, right? Uh, I suppose. Everything that's not in uh, New York City is upstate to people in New York. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Uh, But this story is warning about scammers who have mobile printers and are printing up fake parking tickets, Hmm. putting them on people's windshields. And uh, then they have these websites that collect payment from the from the from the victims. Hmm. Now, I don't know about you, Dave. When was the last time you got a parking ticket? Oh goodness, um, I don't get them very often. Um, my wife, on the other hand, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess I could say um, I'm familiar with them. I yep. sometimes deal with them. <laughs> yes, I had to so. deal with one. Uh, this summer, because the great city of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, has people whose job it is to go around and write parking tickets. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that's what they do. And then you can see them during the summer. They're out there. In the winter, they're not there as much. Okay. Right? Because there's not as many people violating the parking. Right. But uh, I went into a restaurant, and I forgot. I, I went. We got seated at the table. I go, oh, I got to go feed the meter. Yeah. And as I'm going out, the guy is walking away from my car, and there's a ticket on my window. Ah. Uh. I didn't feed the meter though. <laughs> I was like, well, you're getting that money from me, but you're not getting the parking money. Right. right. So, um, there was an interesting thing about that ticket was that they said, if you pay it within 24 hours, it's $25. But if you pay it within 30 days, it's 50 or $40. Oh, 
Oh, okay. So it was incentivizing me to pay the ticket. Right. And I'm wondering, these guys might have something similar to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they do or not. This mm-hmm. is speculation. But they, that, they could improve the uh, effectiveness of their plan if they did this. And I, I, I'm helping these guys out, so maybe I shouldn't be saying <laughs> that. I would uh, imagine there's probably like a QR code on the ticket and it, you know, it takes you to a legitimate-looking website. Yep. It, but what's happening is these guys are walking around with the same technology that these parking, uh, the, the actual legitimate parking guys have uh-huh. for these jurisdictions. And they are just printing out parking tickets and putting them on people's cars. And then the idea is that people will pay them. Right. And of course, once you enter your credit card information into the system, they have that too. So you're probably going to get carded as well. Oof, yeah. Um, and I don't mean they're going to ask to see your ID. I mean, they're <laughs> going to, your card is going to be sold. Right. Um, my other story comes from Gianna Dupre at WTOV Channel 9, and she is talking about something going on in the panhandle, the northern panhandle of West Virginia. Hmm. There is, uh, it's in Marshall County. It is a scam where somebody is dropping off on people's doorsteps. They have a picture of this guy hmm. dropping off on people's doorsteps a, a flyer that says you've been selected as one of 100,000 people to receive a, um, uh, a th- like a $300 or, fi- no, I'm sorry, $50, and it says USD, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nobody in America says USD. <laughs> when we say dollars, we just say dollars. That's just right. like people in Canada, they <laughs> right. say dollars and they mean Canadian dollars, and people in Australia say dollars and they mean Australian dollars. Yeah. Uh, the only time I'm talking uh, US dollars is when I'm talking to somebody in Australia or Canada. Yeah. But if I was talking, if I was somebody from Walmart, I wouldn't tell an American, you got a gift card for 50 US dollars. And that's one of the tells that this is not real. Hmm. But attached to this piece of paper is, you want to guess? A Walmart gift card? No. Oh. A USB drive. What? Yep. (laughs) USB (laughs) drive. And the instructions say... Uh, a, a brand new Mercedes Benz. Right. <laughs> the instructions say, put this into your computer and then call this number. Or, and don't, nobody should do this. Nobody should ever do wow. this. Somebody gives you a USB drive. Uh, you know, I don't even take the USB drives at conferences anymore. Yeah. Uh, I just think that there's, uh, you know, I, I did take one one time and I, I, I put it into a computer and it had like, multiple partitions on it. And I was hmm. like, hmm, this is a security company just gave me this. I wonder what I just did. Uh, these guys were pretty advanced too. Yeah. Well, and we've heard stories about, you know, uh, bargain basement uh, USB drives coming over right. that already have malware installed they're, on yeah, them before part you of the put anything model on the them. manufacturer. Yeah. Because they're just selling these things. They're, they're selling them at a loss because they or maybe not a loss, maybe a cost because they know their profit model is coming from the malicious software that they're going to install. Huh. So I'm I'm minding my own business. Right. I leave my house. There's a flyer on my door. Yep. Attached to the flyer is a USB drive. Right. And With it the, says, good news, you're a winner. Right. All you got to do is stick this in your computer <laughs> right. and profit. Yep. And the uh, the Marshall County Police are uh, asking anybody that received them not to plug it in. Don't plug it in. <laughs> yeah. uh, don't call the number. Wow. And that's my advice, too. And th- now, this is, you know, this is not a free... Uh, scam. This is not like an email scam or something like that. It, first off, somebody has to invest the time to walk around and hand these things out. Well, it's bold too because, uh, you know, how many, I'd say 
I don't know, one out of four of my neighbors has a ring camera. Oh, they now. got a picture of this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From a ring camera. It looks like he got a picture from a ring camera. Right. He's wearing gloves, so he doesn't leave fingerprints behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Is he wearing uh, a mask? Uh, yeah, I don't think he's wearing a mask in this picture, Dave. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, you can see his face pretty well. And he should be easy to ID the guy. Maybe they'll... Maybe the cops will swing around and pick him up. He might not even be in on the scam. You know, it might he, just be somebody said, he "Hey, I'll not. give you, you know, I'll give you twenty bucks to go blanket this neighborhood with these flyers." Right. Yeah. And uh, that that could be it. Somebody he just could be some some guy that they asked to do that. I mean, yeah. that's if I was going to run that scam, that is exactly what I would do. You wouldn't catch me on somebody's porch cam. Right. It would right. be uh, it would be some some poor schmo. <laughs> that, uh, like tricked into doing it. You know, your your uh, your previous story about the fake parking tickets reminds me of a story I heard a while back about, uh, it was about a strip mall that uh, put in their own parking meters. So the meters looked like they were municipal parking meters. <laughs> really? Yeah, but they were not. They The strip mall owner just put in a bunch of parking meters. So there was no enforcement. Right. You know, but people see parking meters, they feed the meters. Huh. So it was a way for the strip mall owner to make a little extra money uh, just by having... And the parking meters didn't say, you know, you have to... <laughs> you know, yeah. you get a ticket if you don't pay the meter. Right. They're just sitting there and people just, would... Somebody yeah. just put parking meters out there right. and people paid it. Right. Huh. Which I think is simultaneously clever and despicable. Yes. Uh, how much is a parking meter, Dave? Oh, it depends on, uh, I don't know, how 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 sharp a, a saw do you have, Joe? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> right? How, I have an angle grinder. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean. Uh, <laughs> I could get those things right off of those I, Yeah, I would bet anybody out there trying to, you know, who's going to stop you, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine the, the problem with an angle grinder is it does make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> So the trick there is you got to wear a yellow vest and look right. like you uh, work for the county. Pull up in a truck yep. that has blinking lights. Yeah, on a little it. minivan. Right. Yep, yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good stories this week. Uh, again, uh, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe. It's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Penny, who writes, This one almost got me, even though I haven't used McAfee, for five to seven years. It's Hmm. still installed on my personal laptop that I never use, which is why this email made me do a double take. Hmm. So I I picked this one because it's exactly the kind of thing that these things look for. Yeah. And and Penny's Penny's experience is what they're banking on. Okay. It says... Dear customer, we want to inform you that the PC and network protection package you selected has expired today and will renew on January 9th, 2023. The requested plan updates is restarted and the $329.99 membership fee is deducted from the available balance, which will appear on statement shortly. This notice indicates that you authorize the auto debit payments during the activation procedure and the same fee will be paid the following year. And then there's a like an 800 number, right. an 833 number to call to uh, – if you have any questions, it says, please be informed that you have two business days to contact us if you decide not to renew the membership. To check your billing, change your payment information, or stop using the services and receive a complete refund, contact us. 
Mm. Yes. So it's interesting to note that the uh, 833 portion of this uh, phone number is not in parentheses as it normally is, but in curly braces. Oh, yeah. And, which to is kind a, of evade uh, yep, some scanning Yep, evade stuff. some things. Penny goes on to say, things that made me suspicious, other than my own email, there are no actual links in the message, so it would have relied on me trusting the number to call. Hmm. Uh, just Google searching the phone number actually makes it clear that this is associated with scam numbers. So good, good job, Penny. The first thing she does is plug that number into Google and see what happens. Yep. Uh, the email actually isn't from the person listed as signing the message. Uh, an email from Hadley and the message is from John. That's mm-hmm. another good catch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that there is a hard deadline that is another good observation. That's called the artificial time constraint in social engineering attacks. Yep. Uh, it is a staple of the scammer. I just got this email on the 9th, which, uh, which it apparently is the renewal date, and I have two business days to call to postpone the renewal. Uh, and she says artificial time crunch, and yep, that's right. Uh, all that being said, I did end up checking with a friend to ensure that my assessment was correct, and this is likely a phishing temp attempt. Love the show and all that you do. Yes, Penny, I guarantee you this is a phishing attempt. Good catch, <laughs> and thank you for sending it to us. Can we just say hats off to Penny because she's just did just about everything right here. Everything. This is, yeah, 100%. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Penny, I'm your <laughs> biggest fan. This is awesome. Including sending it to us. Right. So. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> thank you. You did everything right from front to back here, That's Penny. right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, again, uh, thank you for sending that in, and uh, we would love to hear from you. If you've got something you want us to consider, send us that email. Back to the concept of integrations. Nobefore's Security Coach uses standard APIs to quickly and easily integrate with your existing security products from vendors like Microsoft, CrowdStrike, Cisco, and dozens of others. Security Coach analyzes alerts your security stack generates to identify events related to any risky security behavior from your users. With this information, you can set up real-time coaching campaigns to target risky users based on those events from your network, endpoint, identity, or web security vendors. These campaigns enable you to coach your users at the moment the risky behavior occurs, with contextual security tips delivered via Microsoft Teams, Slack, or email. With 35 integrations and counting, Security Coach delivers the insight you need to improve your organization's security culture. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash security coach. That's knowbefore.com slash security coach. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Nadine Michalides from Anima People, uh, and our discussion focused on preventing insider threats using behavioral science. Here's our conversation. Well, I realized that there's a a massive assumption that uh, people are motivated towards cybersecurity. Um, I think it's brilliant that there's so much work around awareness um, and security culture, but uh, 
Unfortunately, um, there are situations when people are not necessarily uh, motivated towards being conducive uh, in terms of cybersecurity behavior. So the piece of work that I wanted to look into and research and then develop solutions was why those people might not be adapting behavior um, and how do we recognize and identify those individuals in order to prevent attacks from happening. Well, take us through that. I mean, how did you uh, approach that research and what things did you discover? Well, I started off actually um, by looking at something called the psychological contract, um, which is basically it sits above or separate to the employment contract between an employee and an employer. And what that basically includes is is everything else other than what's in, in black and white. So uh, it's 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 not the um, hours of work or uh, location of work or the salary, but it's the expectation that you'll be promoted if you work really hard, that you'll have a great relationship with your manager that you'll be respected internally, that uh, it could be many little things like uh, working flexibly on a Friday so that you can pick up your kids from school. So anything that isn't in black and white in a contract is called the psychological contract. And my research at University College London was looking into what happens when there's a psychological contract breach? What happens when those expectations between the employer and the employee break down? How does that affect their motivation towards being cyber secure and protecting the organization from harm? I mean, really, it's uh, we can think of it logically and say, well, no, Sherlock, you know, if, if I'm not happy in my job or, you know, I'm, I'm really not uh, achieving what I want to achieve or there's some, something really dreadful that's, that's happened that's made me really annoyed at work, then, um, of course, they're not going to go above the call of duty to fulfill those extra tasks that um, perhaps aren't even included in their job description. So that's kind of the research area that I went into. And uh, I did several pieces of work, both from a qualitative and quantitative perspective. And uh, I very much found that, that yes, yes, that was very much true. Um, people are less inclined towards cybersecurity behavior if they've had these psychological contract breaches. Uh, so it stemmed from there. And, uh, and now I've developed solutions which uh, go far and above above and beyond simply just looking at psychological contract breaches, but other psychological factors that uh, could be precursors to people um, being a risk later on throughout their career within an organization. You know, I, I've seen uh, when people talk about employment, uh, I guess at, at one end of the spectrum, folks talk about uh, the feeling of safe places, that their their work is a place where they feel as though they can make a mistake and not be unduly punished for it. I guess at the other end of the spectrum, uh, gosh, I've, there's a Reddit group called Malicious Compliance. Okay, right. I'm, I'm curious. Yes. I'm <laughs> So psychological safety is, is the term we would use in organizational psychology or occupational psychology. And uh, of course, uh, we're much more likely to try new things, to adopt certain behaviors, to perform well, to repeat those behaviors so they turn into habits if we have that degree of psychological safety. So I think that's what you're talking about. And so what are your recommendations? I mean, what sort of things have you come up with based on your research? Well, I think, um, you know, having that multidisciplinary approach, 
having looking at it from different angles um, and not just different angles but looking at it at different times within a, the career development of an individual and a group of individuals is really really important um, I think a lot of work in the area or, or solutions in the area of insider threat focus very much on that period of time when it's too late. So those behaviors are actually already occurring. Um, and any tools will seek to monitor to see if there's any strange things happening in the middle of the night or forwarding of emails to personal accounts, etc. But um but but fail to actually work with HR as one example, or, or look at the individual right at the recruitment and selection stage to really understand what what is this individual like? What is their profile like? What are, what are they motivated towards? What are their aspirations? How are they likely to behave given certain scenarios? Um, and that's the bit that, that I'm really interested in. And I think uh, the current cybersecurity um, teams are missing a trick by, by not sort of trying to understand that individual right from the start. And also to look at the current human factors environment, um, the landscape in terms of, you know, what does their organization actually look like from a, um, a risk perspective um, in terms of human factors? You know, it's not just about having those behaviors. It's about understanding the motivation behind those behaviors. Um, and there's there's nothing currently there that does that. Um, so that's very much been the focus of my research and the developing the solutions that we've developed. You know, it's, it's really a, a fascinating uh, point that you make. And I, I think about hiring someone for a technical role, and I could imagine that, you know, perhaps they wouldn't have as much scrutiny when it came to their forward-facing personality as, say, someone who is going to be in a customer service kind of role. I mean, is, is that a shortcoming? Is it something that we should be paying more attention to? I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of work over the last 30, 40 years around developing organizational culture and deciding what your vision, mission and values are as a team and, and really having those sort of psychometrics or um, recruitment and selection assessments that try and fit those people to the teams. But what isn't there currently is, is understanding whether that person not just fits the values, which can be quite high level and created perhaps 20 years ago, but their security values, you know, their, their security culture, is that person going to be a great role model in terms of um, being an ambassador for security culture? Um, and that's really where I think it's uh, of extra value that uh, HR and, and the cybersecurity teams work together to identify that. And how specifically could they do that? Is it is that part of the onboarding process? So um, in the same way that you would, um, it's kind of expected these days, particularly with large organizations, that you would do some sort of psychometric testing um, as part of the recruitment and selection process to try and see if, if you're a good fit for the team. And, and that should never be um, the decision-making factor, you know, the, the results of those tests. It should always be competency-based or interviews, un, unbiased interviews. 
But they can be there as a key indicator to try and help that decision-making process and understand the needs of that individual once they're employed. So in in the same way, um, there are assessments out there, including ours, well, actually, sorry, only ours, that uh, that look at that from, <laughs> let's be honest, um, that look at that from a security-conscious perspective. I'm curious does does your work help on the other side of things as well? I mean if we if we have a problem, if we have a situation, uh can the work that you've done inform whether or not we're likely to come to a solution with an individual or or perhaps it's best that that they get cut loose or they move on? So you mean if there's been an insider attack? Right. So, I mean, we do go in and investigate uh, the situation through interviews if there's been an insider attack. And that very much um, should be the learning for the future in terms of creating their cybersecurity strategy from a human factors perspective. Um, yeah, so uh, learning from the past is, is critical to preventing threats from happening again in the future. What about the, the situation where people are going around the rules just to get their work done? You know, I, I've heard of folks who, I mean, an organization says, you know, we're restricting your access to Dropbox or some other you know, online tool like that, but but they need that as part of their day-to-day, and so they find a workaround. They use a personal account or something like that. How do you address those sorts of things? Well, I mean, simple surveys would identify if those issues are occurring and why they're occurring. I mean, we've done a number of pieces of work, um, bespoke pieces of work with organizations to, which is a mix of qualitative and quantitative data. Uh, and that is really, really important because it can be as simple as, yeah, a piece of kits like an encryption um, email piece of kit, which is it's completely um, a barrier to business, and and therefore what people do, of course, is is do a workaround. I mean, I would say that happens the majority of the time in those situations. So understanding what those barriers to business are um, are really important in preventing any insider attacks from happening. Do you find that there are any common misunderstandings when it comes to to HR and and uh, relating to the behavior of their employees? Are are there places where they they think they're probably doing better than they actually are? Well, it's a tricky one. I mean, I would say normally the issue is a lack of communication between the two teams or or working in silo on projects rather than understanding what the impact of their pieces of work are on the other department. I haven't noticed so much of a conflict between the two teams. But um, yeah, Interesting question. Why do you ask that? Well, I, I, I guess uh, it's not uncommon for folks who've been at something to fall into their own patterns and habits and beliefs. Um, and certainly um, interpersonal relationships and communications can be kind of fuzzy. So I, I could see how it would be easy for biases to kind of sneak in there and, you know, to the point of, you know, well, that's the way we've always done things or that's the way I always evaluate people. And it seems to me like part of what you're doing is getting in here and kind of shaking things up, but doing so in a way that is backed by science and research. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, HR is is a very important part of that, as are the awareness teams, the communications teams, as you mentioned. I mean, there are a number of people usually, certainly in larger organizations, that have a responsibility to ensuring that the organization is secure and recruiting in the right way, monitoring uh, not just behavior, but attitudes, for example, towards cybersecurity and having the correct controls in place uh, from onboarding to exit strategy. So, yeah, there are a number of people and teams that should be involved in the protection of that organization in terms of insider threat or otherwise from you know just cybersecurity generally. Um, and, and, and yeah, security very much relies on those teams communicating together, having projects that run across those departments and understanding that, you know, whilst we have our tasks and our responsibilities and, and deliverables and deadlines, actually, you know, sometimes there are curveballs and sometimes um, there is some things that we may not have thought of. So that sort of creative thought, thinking outside the box is, is absolutely fundamentally important because that's what the social engineers are doing. They're thinking outside of the box. So we need to think like that too. Joe, what do you think? Dave, I am very happy to hear that there are people that are now calling themselves cyber psychologists. Yeah, uh, this is great news. I'm I couldn't be happier with with having that as a professional job title. Hmm. Uh, Nadine talks about the psychological contract, and that's not anything that's been written down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to be, be kind of cynical about the psychological contract. You know, the, the all the beliefs that Nadine ent- uh, mentioned, like the opportunity for promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the opportunity, the performance, I don't know. I, I'm much more cynical about that. And I've become much more cynical as I've gotten older. But when I was young, I was very optimistic about that. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the things that, that uh, an organization will dangle in front of you to. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that is particularly true in larger companies. Uh, I am in a smaller company right now and in an academic setting. And those are vastly different. Yeah. Uh, and I've worked in, I've been in a smaller company now. I haven't been in a large corporate environment for probably 13 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's vastly different, and I much more appreciate working in the small corporate environment, and I really like the academic environment. That was That's pretty nice. Yeah. Um, lo and behold, people are less involved when employers violate this psych- psychological contract. Right. Um, this is something to me that is – Painfully, uh, well, I don't want to say painfully obvious. I, I'm sure that her research documents much more as to why this happens. But mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. fact that this happened is probably nothing uh, that was surprising to anybody or to Nadine. Yeah. Uh, by the time the behaviors, uh, the, these malicious behaviors are happening, your organizational culture has already failed. Mm. Uh, and it's, I think when Nadine is talking about the cybersecurity teams and thinking about the psychology of this, that's that's great. We should all be thinking about that. but. It really falls – the lion's share of this, I think, falls in the hands of management and leadership. Yeah. Um, that's where I'd, I'd put, the, uh, put the blame. And this is, you know, this is something I've never thought of before. This is kind of a new thing. The impact of how uh, employers treat people is a cyber risk. Mm-hmm. You always run the risk of, of angering somebody into a malicious behavior and that, you know, the in, insider threat. You, we think about that when we think about the insider threat. Right. But I think the more – the bigger risk, rather, is inducing apathy. Mm. I think that's where 
you're really going to lose people and you're really going to suffer damage mm-hmm. is when you violate this psychological contract to the point where people just don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you do that, it's a lot easier to do that to people than it is to get them to, uh, to motivate them to do malicious things. There are some people that you can never motivate to do malicious things, Yeah, uh, but you can motivate just about everybody to not care about the organization. Mm. That's easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, your question there, are there places where HR is not doing as good as they think they are? Yes. <laughs> I will answer that question with a solid yes. And one of those big, uh, big areas is recruiting. And this is especially true in larger organizations. I think there is a real disconnect between HR and hiring managers. And, uh, I have worked at some organizations that have had some awesome recruiting groups. Yeah. Uh, and I've worked at organizations that just make it part of their HR department. Uh, I don't know that recruiting and HR are the same thing. Mm. I think that they should be distinctly separate and Mm -hmm. that, that recruiting somebody who does recruiting should not answer to somebody who runs HR. Mm. I think I, this is my opinion. I'm pontificating now, but (laughs) I really don't think those are the same thing. HR is someone that's there to kind of protect the company yeah. uh, and, and keep people in line and make sure that nobody does anything that they shouldn't be doing. Make sure that no uh, yeah, sexual harassment is the first thing that comes to mind. That's always a big HR task. Right. Uh, and as well, it should be. It's not something uh, I'm, I'm diminishing here. It's something that's very important. We should yeah. all have a, a workplace we all feel comfortable going to. And right. that, that's HR's job. But getting people to come to the workplace, I don't think that's HR's job. I think that I think I think that's a distinctly different uh, skill set that requires a different kind of person to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a management task. This is almost a creative task. Mm. And I've worked in organizations where the recruiting department. I got hired one time inside of one week uh, with an internal recruiting department, and yeah. it was amazing, an amazing experience all around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still keep in touch with the person that ran that recruiting uh, department. And now she is actually head of HR at uh, another company. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but they focus on recruiting most of the time. Yeah. Uh, but th- that's, that's enough out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought this was a really good interview. I'm very happy, like I said, to hear, uh, hear people talking about uh, cybersecurity or cyber psychology yeah. coming together. That is fantastic. Yeah, a really interesting angle that and, we don't often hear much yep. about. So and I, think, I think Nadine pleased. had a lot of cool things to say. Well, again, our thanks to Nadine for joining us. Uh, The organization is called Anima People, and uh, we hope you will uh, check them out. We want to thank all of you for listening, and of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Before. They are experts at enabling a fully integrated approach to security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.